Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Stephen Knott, the author of Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy. He's written five books and is a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. This is also his second appearance on this show. Good to have you back, Professor. How are you? I'm good, Evan. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Great to have you back. Um, Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity that promotes children's literacy. The first memory I have of any president is of the Zabruder film of John F. Kennedy being killed. I was probably five or so, so figure about 1988, when I first saw how quickly a life can end and that it could happen to someone so powerful really struck me, even as a youngster, even at that age. Ever since, I've learned as much as I could about JFK. I've listened to his speeches. I've looked at pictures. I've seen his gravesite. I've been to his library. I took a special course in college on JFK. I've watched movies and I've read and I counted 18 biographies that are solely on JFK. And I even named my own daughter Kennedy for lots of reasons, but he might, you know, he's one of them. Um, to steal the title of your book, I am still very much grappling with JFK, and he died 20 years before I was even born. So, Dr. Knott, why is he so difficult to understand, and why must he be grappled with? Why is the word grappled important? Well, I think he's important to be understood in part because I'm being being quite a bit older than you, Evan. I have some fairly uh, sharp memories, deeply ingrained memories, both of the Cuban Missile Crisis and then a year later or so of uh, the assassination of President Kennedy, which was the first time I saw my mother actually cry, which, of course, was upsetting for somebody who was six years old. Um, So for the baby boom generation, I think the question of why you need to come to terms with him, I think, is somewhat obvious. But for those of you, including Evan, who are younger, (laughs) I would still say that President Kennedy offers something of an example of a more uplifting, uh, I would even say at times, ennobling form of public service. And I find him standing in stark contrast to some of our more contemporary presidents, and in my case, I would argue, particularly standing in contrast with Donald Trump. But part of the reason we have such a difficult time coming to grips with John F. Kennedy is because this is a man who, after the assassination in Dallas, members of his family and various family courtiers went to great lengths to create a certain mythology about this president that really distorted what he was about. That, in turn, led to a kind of counter-Camelot myth, as I like to call it, which I think went even further in the opposite direction, and I think also distorted his legacy. So I hope in this book I sort of find that middle ground between the mythmakers who talked about a Camelot, which never existed, and the, for lack of a better term, the haters, who found nothing in JFK to admire, and I find that equally uh, that take equally falling short. Well, we're going to get into both of them. Um, first of all, though, the JFK class that I mentioned 
began with a discussion. By the way, it was Professor Marty Brownstein from Ithaca College, a legendary professor who sure. I'm still in touch with to this day. Um, the, the class I mentioned began with a discussion where we all gave words to describe what we assume to be true about JFK. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but I want to say it was something to do with how inspiring I found his speeches to be. So I may have even said inspiring in that conversation. But Professor Brownstein highlighted the response of one student, and that response was overrated. And we all went, what? Huh? Overrated? JFK? What? Isn't he a legend? Um, you eventually arrived at that word as well. So tell us about your personal JFK journey and how far you went in repudiating the Kennedy mystique. So I grew up in a Kennedy worshiping family in Massachusetts, and I use that word worship with some precision. My mother was of Irish Catholic descent. And because President Kennedy broke that glass ceiling that prevented a non-Protestant from becoming president, uh, John F. Kennedy and the entire Kennedy family could do no wrong as far as my mother was concerned. And uh, I sort of absorbed that as well. Uh, and I accepted this kind of Camelot myth, which was uh, a term that Jacqueline Kennedy first uh, sort of uh, uh, fed into the body politic. Uh, as I grew up, and my first job was at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston, while I continued to admire President Kennedy, I was put off by the uh, attempts to prevent legitimate bona fide historians from gaining access to some materials that the family thought might be embarrassing. And they only well, picked a couple of them, right? There were, I mean, only a few famous historians got to even look at these documents. That's right, Evan. And we're talking primarily Arthur Schlesinger Jr., uh, people like Doris Kearns Goodwin as well, people that the family felt would, um, uh, you know, not report or not document some of the more embarrassing elements of President Kennedy's life. I was disturbed by that as much as I admired President Kennedy. I also felt a devotion to history. And that led me to become somewhat estranged from the Kennedy movement, if you will. And you know, to, to directly answer your question, I went pretty far over to the other side, believing that this man was something of an empty suit with good teeth and good hair, which by the way, the latter, I was always quite jealous of. And who are you talking to here? Um, uh, uh, the word embarrassing is interesting because I'm embarrassed to even talk about the embarrassing things about uh, JFK. Um, yeah. why, why, why did people consider him? Let, let's talk about liberals, right? We talk about liberals. Um, I certainly knew quite a few of them growing up. Um, my grandmother would you know, start to break down in tears a little bit when she would look at the JFK books that we had in the house. She had an old Life magazine and an old time and whatever pictures of the assassination itself and to this day well okay not to this day but before when she was alive she would cry um she would start to get openly weepy because um she shared a lot of his ideals what stood out for liberals why did liberals consider him one of the greatest democratic presidents maybe a hair below fdr that's a terrific question because interestingly enough kennedy was not the favorite of liberals in 1960, many of them still wanted Adlai Stevenson. But I think, uh, Evan, the tragic death of this young president, seated next to his beautiful wife, uh, with, and of course, the father of two young children, and the fact that just a few months prior to Dallas, 
President Kennedy had given a very stirring address. And by the way, you're right to sort of highlight Kennedy's rhetorical powers. I think he's one of our most effective presidents in that regard. But he had given a, a speech to the nation in June of 63, in which he really put his presidency on the line for civil rights. And I think there was a tendency to assume after Dallas that somehow Kennedy had been a martyr for civil rights. Uh, even Jackie Kennedy expressed the wish that her husband had been killed for civil rights rather than, as she put it, a, by a silly little communist. So I think President Kennedy became identified, accurately or not, with the 1960s civil rights movement. And that explains some of what you were getting at, Evan, this sort of liberal elevation of Kennedy into the pantheon of great American presidents. I'm, I'm laughing now because my grandmother would go, that was a lucky shot. It was a lucky shot by a, by a, you know, by a runt. Um, yeah. the conservatives have a bit of a different view and, and um, contemporary conservatives today. Um, I've seen in many places, they'll say he was the last sane Democratic president. Um, he sort of represents this time before the Great Society and before what they consider runaway welfare spending. Um, so what stood out for conservatives, um, I guess, bad at the time? And why is he a bit revered even for them to this day? I think some conservatives see a kind of hawkish JFK who took a, at least publicly took and certainly in his rhetoric took a very hard line vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. So that speech at the Berlin Wall, again, June 1963, is something that any conservative can admire, where Kennedy talks about Berlin as being this outpost of Western freedom, and that all free men are citizens of Berlin. That's the Kennedy that a lot of modern, particularly neoconservatives, admire, the one who increased the defense budget, the one who, again, at least publicly, took a very hawkish stance against Soviet totalitarianism. That's the president some of them admire, although I have to say, Evan, having been a kind of card-carrying conservative for at least the last couple of decades, uh, there are, I would say, still more conservatives who, who find Kennedy to be somewhat wanting, to say the uh, least. Um, I'm just curious, have you ever stood in the spot where he gave that speech at the Berlin Wall? I wish I could say I had. I've been to Germany. I went there a few years back, certainly, you know, walked the steps of the wall, but not the exact spot where he delivered that speech. A lot of folks think it was at the Brandenburg Gate. It actually was not there. It was at a different location. Um, that is one of the places I hope to visit one day and also the ancestral homeland in Ireland, sure. which um, I think he visited both on the same trip. He and yeah. he considered that trip the greatest days of his life it's really sad i think he died just a few months later yes. um um your argument isn't that he's good or that he's bad but that his presidency matters even though it was less than three years we have to pay attention to what happened in those two and a half two and three quarter years why oh sorry why because again, i think evan you're right he was president for two years 10 months and two days that's a sort of a blip and the sort of uh, lengthy span of this nation's existence. But I would say uh, he's worthy of, of our attention in 2022, because in some ways he set the framework, for better or for worse, of the modern American presidency. And by that, I mean the importance of dominating the media, the importance of dominating the news cycle. The guy was simply a master 
when it came to the use of television, which was a cutting edge technology in his day. And, and Jackie do, as well, right? I mean, Jackie did lifestyle pieces and they kind of opened up the whole family to the camera lens. Absolutely correct. And President Kennedy knew, and this is going to sound cynical, and I think it was somewhat cynical. He knew the value of this beautiful first lady. He knew the political potency of having two young, very attractive children. He would frequently call photographers from Life and Look magazine into his office to take pictures of the little kids romping in the Oval Office. That stuff is political gold. And in that sense, again, Kennedy understood the power of media, was good at it. Um, and so, you know, in my view, there's a lot of downsides to that. But nonetheless, I would say that's one factor worthy of, you know, looking at him closely in 2022. Uh, I once interviewed Caroline Kennedy in my job as a news reporter. I probably was with her three minutes. And I'll never forget the feeling of like staring into her face and being like, oh, my God, it's actually you. <laughs> like, this was your father. He was your father. You know, this yeah. was your Jackie was your mother. Um, right. uh, in terms of the, the the process of this book, I mean, there's a ton we could talk about. But what aspects of the presidency of his presidency did you dissect and focus on? So I focused on a number of issue areas, one of which I just spoke about, which is Kennedy's interpretation of presidential power, in particular, how to use the media to enhance that power, to make the president, as Kennedy was fond of saying, as big a man as he wants to be. But I also look at specific issues such as Vietnam, uh, Cuba, uh, negotiations with the Soviet Union, with Nikita Khrushchev, of course, uh, and also civil rights. I devote two chapters to Kennedy and civil rights, which I think Kennedy has not quite uh, been given a fair shake. And by that, I mean, a lot of liberal scholars are critical of Kennedy for being too cautious, not aggressive enough, not throwing the weight of his office behind the civil rights movement. I think he does do that. And you can make a case that he did that belatedly. And I get that. But he threw the full weight of his office behind the civil rights movement in June of 63. And by the way, he paid a political cost for that, particularly in the South, which he was gonna need in 1964. He was gonna need those white Democratic Party organizations to get out there for him. And that effort on Kennedy's behalf cost him. So those are the issues I look at, Kevin. Do we know his exact thought process in why he decided, I'm gonna make a moral case for civil rights. I'm going to look at you all and say, which of us, meaning white people, which of us would trade places? I think, Evan, it was a slow build. I think there were a series of events in Kennedy's presidency, during Kennedy's presidency, that genuinely shocked him, that moved him in his core. Uh, and I'm talking about, of course, the attacks on the Freedom Riders, the riots at the University of Mississippi, over the admission of one black veteran uh, into the University of Mississippi in September of 62. Uh, Governor Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door, uh, Bull Connor in Birmingham unleashing the fire hoses and the police dogs. All of that affected President Kennedy. He, uh, this is an important point. He would have, been, would have been the first to admit that he did not have a lot of experience in a sense with this issue. He came from a predominantly white New England state. And in a way, he sort of had to have his eyes opened. And God bless Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference 
for opening his eyes. But I think once he got to that point in the summer of 63, there was no turning back. So it was a slow evolution, Evan. The um, other aspect of the book that I just loved is how he handled the Cuban Missile Crisis. Because in movies um, and in some books, there's a perception that he um, that he and Bobby um, and a couple of aides were kind of in this little group trying to tame the rest of them. But what you argue is that Kennedy was really on his own island and that it came down to his judgment um, and that Bobby Kennedy was really on the side of pushing along with some of the more hawkish people that there should be more aggressive actions taken. And that struck me in this book. Um, why did you want to highlight that? And how did you discover that really Kennedy was on his own? I wanted to highlight that, Evan, because, again, it's another example of how history is distorted by folks who have an interest in distorting it. And in this case, it was uh, people around Robert Kennedy and Robert Kennedy himself who decided to sort of rewrite the record. Now, look, we know what happened. We have so many tape recordings of these key Cuban Missile Crisis discussions. We know, in fact, that Robert Kennedy actually took a very hawkish stance along with the Joint Chiefs and almost everybody else on the so-called XCOM, who were urging some type of direct military assault on Cuba. President Kennedy is one of the lone voices throughout that so-called 13 days who was always resisting, who was asking very probing questions about the use of force and the costs that will accrue in invading Cuba. And so I think you see a somewhat heroic president standing alone, even against his own brother at times. There's so much mythology built up around the 13 days. The tapes tell us the real story. The tapes, um, there's also tapes of these phone calls that he made with Dwight Eisenhower. And yes. the great thing about a Kennedy phone call is that he dominates no matter who he's speaking to. And it yes. goes really quick. And he goes, is General Ally? Okay. And he runs through things and he goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, great. See ya. But why did he make those calls? Why was that part of his leadership? Um, I think in some ways he really, he really saw himself as being one occupant in a line of people who were going to occupy that office. And you've argued so forcefully that these presidents are, are in your other books, these presidents are caretakers. They're not president for life. And he understood that. I think he did understand that. He was always very respectful, as you said, of President Eisenhower. I mean, privately, he had lots of differences with Eisenhower. And they all do, yeah. And they all do. Right. But he had a certain respect for the office, for the dignity of the office. Now we can we could argue about some aspects <laughs> of his dignity behavior mate, yeah, that okay. were not particularly dignified. Okay. But in terms of dealing with Truman, with Herbert Hoover, who was still very much alive at this point, with Dwight Eisenhower, and even, by the way, Evan, he would occasionally reprimand his own White House staff when they would make derogatory comments about Lyndon Johnson. And Kennedy would tell them, look, one, if you guys ever go out and actually run for an office yourself, then you might have some cause to take shots at the vice president. But, you know, until you do that, let's show some respect to him, at least in our sort of official dealings. <laughs> it, it, unofficially, was he part of the group that called him Rufus Cornpone? Well, or did, or did you not Cornpone, get that far? I think, it was, yeah, I, I think he did have a kind of, sure, I think in private, probably with Mrs. Kennedy, especially 
uh, he had a sort of disparaging <laughs> view of vice president. I know he hated the fact that when he went to the LBJ ranch at one point, he had to shoot a deer. Uh, he was not big on that kind of activity. I think Johnson enjoyed every minute of making Kennedy uncomfortable. So sure, <laughs> there was a lot going on underneath the surface. <laughs> um, uh, one aspect of the book that I really loved is um, you describe his sort of emotional state as he starts to deal with um, the threat of nuclear war. And of course, there's a SALT treaty that is signed. And um, Chris Matthews focused on that in his book as being kind of the, the signature achievement. Um, so how did you find that his emotions and his understanding of war, and we know that he insisted on being in the front lines. I mean, in stark contrast to our recent presidents, um, he insisted on seeing war up close. Um, how did you kind of, um, how did you diagnose the way his emotions were impacting his view of literally the potential of having the end of the world on his watch. John F. Kennedy hated war. And I think this is an aspect of Kennedy's uh, being that is not properly understood. And I have to give a shout out here to an historian by the name of Sheldon Stern, who's written some excellent books on the Cuban Missile Crisis and links Kennedy's stance in the Missile Crisis to Kennedy's own wartime experiences on PT-109. John F. Kennedy lost two crew members when his ship was cut in half by that Japanese destroyer. Another crew member was seriously burned. Kennedy saved that man's life. Kennedy's personal letters home before, during, and after this event are filled with disparaging comments about war. And keep in mind, the PT-109 incident, it's 1943. It's, not, it's within 20 years of this man's presidency. It's fresh in his mind. And Stern cites quote after quote after quote, where Kennedy clearly indicates his hatred of war. So underneath the hawkish rhetoric that you sometimes saw from President Kennedy, I think partly for political reasons, this was a man who despised war, who acted accordingly, and was desperately trying to reach an accord with the Kremlin. And I think the nuclear... Uh, Test Ban Treaty of 63, which he was quite proud of and which he fought quite hard for, speaks volumes about Kennedy's true stance regarding war and in particular nuclear weapons and mutual assured destruction. All right, we've made it to where you're going to finally compare JFK and Donald Trump. Um, how uh, uh, How is JFK a particular, and just for those of you who don't know, Dr. Knott wrote a really wonderful book tracing the um, the lineage of demagoguery in our president in our presidency and how presidents have been quite irresponsible with their rhetoric. Um, in you know, a demagogue is someone who gins up um, their supporters and gins up fervor um, for whatever the reason. Dr. Knott argues it's unhelpful. Um, how is JFK a particular kind of antidote to the demagoguery that you have argued so forcefully against? I think generally speaking, Evan, John F. Kennedy tried to avoid circulating conspiracy theories. I think John F. Kennedy tried to avoid stirring hatreds and distrust amongst the American people. I do think for the most part, he appealed, as Lincoln would have put it, to the better angels of our nature. 
and I do find in Kennedy's rhetoric and speeches, and I know you believe this, Evan, um, that he appealed to the best in America, and he appealed to a kind of hope and promise. He rejected the idea that America should be a piece of walled, walled off turf. In other words, America stood for certain ideals that were universal. And I see in President Kennedy a real antidote to modern Trumpism, which is the exact opposite of that. It appeals to the worst in our citizenry. It seeks to divide one American against another and does so in part through the constant circulation of unfounded conspiracy theories. Kennedy would never do that. So it's just wild to me that someone who spoke out so forcefully against conspiracy theories and Kennedy um, specifically warned in his speeches that we don't need to wait for a man on horseback, that the danger in that is that we wind up listening to what the man on horseback wants to say and that conspiracy theories grow out of that. And it's deeply unhealthy because it makes you think that you know more than everybody else. And really, we're all just trying to figure out what the heck is right. just is going on. Um, how, how did someone who spoke out so forcefully against conspiracy theories during his life become a victim of them in death? Yeah, terrific question. Look, I think for a lot of folks in the American left, and this goes back to one of your earlier questions, there was this desire to infuse President Kennedy's death uh, to make him a martyr for liberal causes of the day, and I would say in particular civil rights. And uh, even though the evidence against Lee Harvey Oswald, I, I would argue, is overwhelming, there begins to be an acceptance on the on the liberal side of the American political equation that somehow Kennedy was done in by anti-civil rights, probably reactionary Dallas billionaires, uh, maybe in cahoots with organized crime. I mean, you get one theory after another when it's disproven, they just move on to another one. But this is the beginning of a kind of conspiracy industrial complex in the United States. And it begins on the American left with allegations of a so-called deep state. Now that conspiracy theory has moved from the left now to the right. It's routinely uh, um, endorsed by Donald Trump. Uh, Trump even had his own spin that Ted Cruz's father somehow killed President Kennedy. Um, but I, you know, again, John F. Kennedy would have found all of this highly irrational, anti-intellectual, and it really is a tragic twist of fate, as you noted, Evan, that his death has produced such a proliferation of these theories that he would have rejected out of hand. I asked you about the um, the uh, uh, whether you'd been to the spot in Germany where he gave the Ich bin ein Berliner speech. Have you been to Dealey Plaza? I'm embarrassed to say I, I haven't not. either. So we're yeah. Yeah. And I certainly want to go someday. My wife and I have it on our list. I know yeah. I will go at some point. What do you imagine you'll you'll look for first? I'm thinking, of course, that I'll gaze up towards the grassy knoll, which, of course, everyone assumes, the conspiracy crowd assumes where some of the shots came from. And then I would hope to pay a visit to the sixth floor museum and go up to that sixth floor and view the sniper's nest. I'm told, of course, that if you look out those windows on that sixth floor, really, President Kennedy was, you know, I mean, it was an easy shot. Mm. And for a Marine marksman, it was more than an easy shot. 
So I would think looking towards the grassy knoll, looking out that sixth floor, I'm told also that it's a rather small area and you can understand why these shots were ricocheting, the echoes, excuse me, were ricocheting all over Dealey Plaza, which fed into these conspiracy theories. Uh, a more um, upbeat question. Uh, I'm sure in your time at the library and in your research, you've seen souvenirs and you've gotten to probably interact with and hold souvenirs. What is your favorite um, JFK souvenir that you've got to see and touch and hold and examine for yourself? I would have to say, I mean, I have a signed copy of a book by Dave Powers and Kenny O'Donnell, who were arguably two of President Kennedy's closest aides. My mother had gone to high school with Kenny O'Donnell. And then I worked with Dave Powers for six years or so at the Kennedy Library. So I have a fairly warmly inscribed version signed by both of those men. And then I also have some of the JFK PT-109 tie clasps uh, that I was able to obtain over the years. Uh, so for me, those sort of personal interactions, particularly with Dave Powers and the few mementos I have from Powers are something that I'll always treasure. Have you um, gotten to hold a letter that he actually wrote or when you do research, yes. are you just looking at um, copies of them? Well, when I was doing research, I was looking at copies. But when I was an employee of the Kennedy Library, I had some friends up in the archives who would allow me on occasion uh, to actually hold some of the documents, wearing the appropriate gloves and protective gear, of course. But yeah, it's always it's always a thrill when you're able to hold an actual piece of history in what? your hand. Could, could I add something, please. Evan? Yeah, please. You mentioned your interview with Caroline Kennedy. I tell a quick story in the book about the time I was introduced to Jacqueline Kennedy yeah. by Dave Powers. And it was the only time in my life that I was literally tongue-tied. I don't even think I could get hello out of my mouth. Yeah. And that shows you the sort of just the power and the the the, the just the impact uh, that these folks had. And when I told my mother that Dave Powers had introduced me to Jackie Kennedy, I was I was a candidate for sainthood at that point. I could do no wrong after that. So you're so you're glowing right now. I mean, we're looking at each other on on Zoom here. But um, where do you come down on your coming to grips and coming to terms with JFK? Um, we tend to want to say good or bad, but right. how do you put all of this together? And what is the feeling that you have now um, from sainthood to being like, oh, I'm not so sure about these guys? Where where are you now? Great question. I, I'm an admirer of President Kennedy's public record. I'm an admirer of President Kennedy's uh, what I would call American exceptionalism, which is a term that's frequently under attack these days. But I do believe he saw the United States as the last best hope, as Lincoln put it. And that's the John F. Kennedy that I admire, the man who called his fellow citizens to give something back to their country. Uh, the man who called them to, to service before self with things like the Peace Corps, deeply, deeply admire that. The downside, of course, uh, is his personal conduct, which unfortunately bled over at times into his public service. And that I find, of course, troublesome. And I get it, by the way, if people are listening to this and still find John F. Kennedy less than admirable. I understand that perspective because there were times when his behavior was out of line. And even somebody like Ted Sorensen came to conclude that it was out of line. So, you know, that's a somewhat nuanced, maybe excessively ambiguous take. 
I admire the public service. I admire the call to service. There are aspects of his life that I wish he hadn't engaged in, but nonetheless, I'm old enough to realize we all have significant flaws. What about from a policy perspective? You called yourself a card-carrying conservative. A conservative did his policies help this country or hurt this country? I mean, this I is like they, a gross generalization, but if you can generalize for me, go ahead. Sure, sure. I think on the whole, they were quite positive, uh, Evan. Uh, I think, and we didn't touch a lot on Vietnam. I oh, yeah. Go ahead and do that. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, one of the arguments you make is that it's hard to imagine him dragging the Kennedy legacy and flame through what ended up being that just horrible, um, you know, a horrible bevy of death in Vietnam. Yeah, uh, I referred in passing earlier to the to his hatred for war, of war. Uh, this was a man who, for better or for worse, pulled the plug on the Bay of Pigs invasion. This was a man who stood by when the Berlin Wall went up. This was a man who made remarkable concessions to Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which had they been publicly known, might have led, even speculated, to his impeachment. Uh, this was a man who was reaching out to Khrushchev in 1963. I just don't see John F. Kennedy following the same path that Lyndon Johnson did. I realize a lot of folks strongly disagree with that take, but this man hated war, and I simply can't see him by 1967-68 when American soldiers are returning in body bags by the hundreds sitting by and allowing this to happen. I see a very different course of action than the one taken by Lyndon Johnson, and that alone would have been a remarkably significant event in American history. Um uh, why now i'm not suggesting everybody has to go out and research and write a 240 page book um to do this but why do we need why is it healthy to examine ourselves and our political beliefs and the politicians and other people in our lives who we revere i think we live in a time evan where people are kind of locked in to a particular perspective and god forbid if you stray from that perspective from that ideology I think we have a tendency to point fingers at those of us who perhaps differ on a particular issue or regarding a particular candidate if we don't toe the line. And that is extremely unhealthy in a republic such as ours. So I'm hoping people will take a journey similar to the one that I took, which is where you constantly examine your political beliefs. Don't become locked in either, the ba either on the basis of ideology or some kind of cultish devotion, you need to constantly rethink. And President Kennedy, by the way, did this as well. So I think this is a book about looking at your own political beliefs, which we all need to do in 2022, in order to get past these deep divisions that exist today, where Americans tend to view those on the other side of the spectrum somehow as enemies. That's incredibly unhealthy. Uh, top five speeches, top five JFK speeches. I've got mine. Feel free to offer your top five. Well, for me, I think one of the most moving is the speech at the Berlin Wall. I'm not I sure have, I put it number one. So I have one. that one too. Yep, I have okay. that too. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the inaugural address is incredibly stirring. Uh, I would put the June 63 civil rights address just in terms of its, mm. as you've cited, Evan, it's, it's moral plea. It's, it's plea for white Americans to put themselves in the shoes of African-American citizens. Um, I, I, I have would, that one too. 
I would also put his speech at Shannon Airport when he's leaving Ireland in June of 63. And he talks about listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about returning to Ireland in the springtime. And of course, that's he's he's citing a poem by a famous, famous Irish poet. And of course, that's only a few months before his own death. He's never going to return to Ireland. So that has its own moving qualities to it. Um, And I guess I might even add the undelivered speech at the Dallas Trademark, where you can read the text of it. If you go to the Kennedy Library online, you can read his undelivered speech, in which there is a passage in there in which he urges Americans to reject conspiracy theories, to reject the people who play on our fears, to have a positive take on the future, and to use the power of their reason uh, to to when they consider their political choices. It's pretty crazy that that is the speech he was supposed to give next. I mean, what yeah. what an what a kind of uh, postscript. Yeah. Um, my five, uh, I've got Berlin, an incredible expression of America standing with freedom, um, truly moving every time I see it. Um, all free people are citizens of one place, right? Um, uh, the civil rights address I have. I also think the American University speech oh, is yes, just sure. remarkable. I mean, I know that's an easy one, but it's remarkable in that um, it says, you know, peace doesn't have to be perfect for us to keep trying. You know, um, uh, without a doubt, I think his Independence Hall speech in Philadelphia um, is remarkable. Um, and then his toast at the America, I think it's the America's Cup, where uh, they they do a uh, there's a sailing race between the U.S. and Australia, and he says we should all go back from whence we came. Uh, oh, yeah. And and I I think his stats might be a little bit off on that. I'm not sure it's the exact same percentage <laughs> of tear of of uh, salt in our tears and in our water, but uh, in our ocean water. But it's still a beautiful expression of how we all need to be one with nice. uh, with the globe. Nice. Um, uh, Evan, could I have one please? more? Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the, by sure. the way, I liked your list better than mine. Oh, um, that's nice. His speech at Rice University, uh, yeah. where he talks about landing a man on the moon and the reason why Americans and, and human beings in general have this spirit of adventure and exploration. I actually find that speech to be quite moving. I think it's September 1962. And this is the one where he... Um, uh, at the conclusion of the speech, as he's walking off the stage, he turns to the Na- NASA administrator, James Webb, and his staff and says, OK, guys, now you figure out the details. <laughs> right. Right. Have, yeah. Have fun with that. Uh, go to the moon, by the way, yeah. in 10 yeah. years. But have, uh, yeah. Right. Um, uh, what's interesting about JFK, and I've read literally hundreds of presidential biographies, um, what's interesting is that it's very hard to find a a a single volume treatment of him that really I find satisfying. Some of them are a bit too academic. Um, yeah. Some of them focusing on one aspect of his life, like his masculinity or his approach to conspiracy theories. Um, so I guess I would ask just which ones do you recommend? I mean, the one that that, that just came out by Frederick Lojeval is very, yeah. very good. And I I've, I've found that to be just about the most satisfying one I've read. But some of the 400 page ones, you really can't do JFK in four or even 500 pages. He's he's just a bear of a guy. Right. No, I agree. I, I guess, Evan, I would I would give pretty high marks to if you're looking for one volume to Robert Dalek's unfinished, the, an unfinished life. 
Um, it has its weaknesses, I would say, but on the whole, Dalek deserves a lot of credit. He's really one of the first major authors to unearth just how sickly this president was and just how courageous in a way he was in dealing with so many ailments. Incredible. And never, yeah. never complaining about it. And I see that as a form of courage. And I think Dalek's unfinished life fleshes out that courage for the reader. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. Um, and I would also argue that his um that his experience dealing with those ailments gave him a certain sense of it sort of took away the kind of scaffolding that he lived his life under as a as a spoiled rich kid. Very great terrific point, Evan. And I think the critics of President Kennedy who see him as that spoiled rich kid completely ignore what you what you just said and, and also allowed him to interact with nurses and with working class people and spend exactly. time in hospital yeah all that exactly um, uh so I, I i know someone i have a child named kennedy axelbank who i love so much and <laughs> every time i say her name i can't believe that there's a kennedy in my house it's incredible um uh what do you think is the best um uh, how do we uh, maybe as parents, Haley and I, how do we um, uh, answer people when they say, why is Kennedy so good for a young person looking out at the world? Why is that such a great name to have? I would say we sort of just touched on it. The personal courage that he showed in terms of overcoming. I mean, look, this was a man who was given the last rites of his church three separate times in the 1950s. I mean, this man faced death on uh, three separate occasions, and then a fourth occasion during the Second World War. He could have been easily killed in that PT-109 incident. And he, and he lost his son, too. And he lost the son. Um, and I believe it was also, yeah, I mean, there were a series. He lost his older brother in the Second yeah, World right. War. Forget all he, that, yeah. He lost Kathleen Kennedy, his sister, whom he apparently admired the most, in a, a plane crash in 1947, 48. This was a man who knew death, who knew illness, and yet had a very optimistic take on life and never allowed his own ailments, his own limitations. Uh, to keep it, you know, look, he could have easily just sat on his trust fund. He became a millionaire at the age of 21 when his <laughs> father's trust fund was given to him. He could have gone a very separate path. He did not. He never complained. He devoted himself to public service. I find that extremely admirable. And there's a part of the Robert Carroll books um, where the chapter is titled The Rich Man's Son. And one of the things that the um, chapter points out, I think astutely, is that the, his father's money couldn't put him into the street to campaign. His father's no. money couldn't put him at the factory door to meet workers. His father's money couldn't help him with the speeches, and it couldn't help him um, bring women into his campaign, and it couldn't help him go on to the Boston transit system to right. meet voters in that way. Uh, terrific, terrific point. I, I've always thought that Emphasis on Joseph P. Kennedy, his money, his connections, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, they were important, no question. But there is a tendency amongst his critics, I think, to overstate the role of President Kennedy's father. As you said, Evan, you've got to have something more than just an image. Otherwise, Nelson Rockefeller or somebody else would have been president. 
You know, you cannot buy your what you I, I think it's something of a myth that you buy your way into the presidency. Kennedy worked his way into the presidency. He was a great retail campaigner, whether it was here in Boston, where I'm speaking to you from, or in West Virginia in 1960 or wherever. This guy busted his hump uh, out there on the stump. And uh, <laughs> that's good. That was good. Uh, yeah. That was. That's Gosh, good. Maybe I need to run myself. <laughs> um, you know, he, we worked hard at it. Um, all right. I could keep asking questions. We're going to have to just continue this somewhere else, um, unfortunately. But uh, it's been a, a ton of fun. Let me just ask, uh, do you know what you're doing next? This one was so um, it was enjoyable, Evan, but it was it was it was a long road. So I'm taking a little bit of time off in terms of my own writing. Um, I have a few ideas in mind. I'm just not sure what's next. I may, if I can bring myself to do it, uh, try to look at some of the recent phenomenon surrounding President Trump. I just don't know if I have the energy, moral and physical to do that. All right. We'll let you off the hook for now. Dr. Stephen Knott, the author of Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Evan. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Such a such a fun time. Uh, check out the book. Check out his website, stephenfnott.com. He's on Twitter at Publis57. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.